Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to John chapter 13 today. I want to talk to you this morning about defined by love, defined by love. And I want you to begin to think, how is it that love has changed you? Do you ever spend much time thinking about this? How is it that love has changed you? You know, this isn't just a distinctively Christian theme because the world has recognized this for quite some time. Some of the better era of music from Huey Lewis himself tells us, you see what I did there? Just want to remind you. Tells us this, that the power of love is a curious thing. Makes one man weep, makes another man sing. Tougher than diamonds and richer than cream. He's right. He's right. Love is powerful and it's life changing. And what we're going to see today is love's real power. Love's real power. And I want you to understand this, that the Christian life is defined by love. To live as we've been loved in Jesus Christ so the world can know God's love. The Christian life is defined by love. And God's love defines the Christian life by guarding against two false loves, as we'll see today, and practicing one priority. Let's go to John chapter 13. I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. And the word says, after saying these things. So let me just give you a quick recap. The first 20 verses of John chapter 13 is where they've just finished the meal and Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Okay, so that's what's just taken place. He's just taken the towel off. He's explained why he washed their feet. He sat back down at the table with them, okay? Verse 21. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Immediately following that powerful moment of Jesus teaching and training the disciples by foot washing, Jesus, it says, is troubled in his spirit. 
And he makes the most troubling statement to the disciples when he says this, one of you at this table will betray me. Now remember the setting. Those at the table are not 50, 100, or 150. There's 13 at the table. It's the most intimate setting of the disciples. And understanding that one would betray him placed a crushing burden upon his spirit. Friends, Jesus knew he'd be betrayed before he completed his greatest act of sacrificial love. Yet, he submitted his will to obey the Father. Don't miss out on the war taking place in Jesus' heart for you and I leading up to the cross. And so Peter motions for John to ask Jesus of whom he's speaking, and John obliges. Anytime you see in the gospel the one Jesus loved or the one reclining against Jesus, that was the traditional way. They would lean into the table with their legs kind of basically in a a, 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 a a position that was laying on the floor, resting on their left arm, and then they would use their right hand to eat from the table. And that's how it was customary for them to do so. And we know that John had the most intimate of personal relationship with Jesus, and that's why he says he was leaning against him, because that was just a posture that was very uh, uh, very customary to the way that they showed affection towards one another in that day. And so Peter... You know, in a rare moment of filtering, instead of just asking Jesus himself, he said, hey, won't you find out for us what's happening here? And John obliges. And so we see this interaction between John and Jesus. And likely what is taking place here is not clearly articulate to everyone at the table. It's more maybe like a whisper to one another. And so it tells us, That Jesus says, the one to whom I give this morsel will be the one who betrays him. Now, a commentator says this about the phrase and the way in which John is writing here. It seems more clear to us than it would have seemed to them at the moment. That Jesus clearly didn't want the whole group to know the identity of the betrayer. He didn't want to just call him out in this moment it would come early enough that it would be clear who it was and what he had done and so Jesus dips the morsel and he hands it to Judas and the Bible tells us that Satan immediately entered in to Judas and what Jesus told him was to go and do quickly what he was going to do and John clarifies how unclear it would have been to them at the table when they didn't really understand what Judas was going to do they thought maybe Jesus had just sent him on some business for the disciples and at that moment a dark heaviness permeated the room but the disciples did not know all As I said in our first sermon on chapter 13, John gives such a helpful perspective. He tells us not only what's happening in the room, but he gives us insight to what's taking place in the spirit world. That when Jesus handed the morsel to Judas, Satan entered his heart. But he also gives us insight into the heart of Jesus And what's taking place. And and we see how Satan is working. But we also see how Jesus is working. And friends this is important for us to understand too. Though Satan was at the table. 
and he entered Judas at the table. He was powerless until Jesus gave him permission. Don't miss that. He did nothing without the permissive will of God granting him permission to do what he did. You miss that? You could be thrown in a trajectory that takes your salvation completely off target. No matter how big Satan may appear in your life, he never acts outside of the permissive will of God. Take hold of that. It's one of the hardest doctrines that you will ever have to study and come to grips with. While actions seem obvious to us, they were not as evident at the table. Commentators also tell us that Jesus' last act to Judas, the passing of the morsel to him, was likely an act of honor which may give us understanding as to why the whole situation was confusing because the act that would identify the traitor that Jesus whispered to John was the very act that would be one of honor. So Jesus might dip the morsel at different times, pass it to a different disciple in some semblance of honor, maybe to recognize them or to thank them or some measure of that way. But a commentator is telling us that that, that was likely one of honor. So surely it wouldn't be the very one who Christ was honoring in the most intimate of act. That would be the betrayer. And then Judas left. You know why Judas left? Because Jesus loved him enough to let him. That's why Judas left. And that's how the situation ended. Friends, all of life is defined by God's love. When you believe in Jesus to receive God's love and become a Christian... Grace defines all of life with God's redeeming love. But God loves people before they become a Christian. That's what John 3.16 tells us. For God so loved the world. God's great love sent Jesus to die for a world that rejected him. God's love is not limited. God loves all his creation, which lives in his love daily. And in love, God bestows special dignity, special honor to those who are formed, created in his image. People. People. That's where we get the foundation of our value for human life above any other part of life in creation or animal kingdom or otherwise because we're created in the image of Christ, Jesus, the one who was with the Father in the beginning. But one thing prevents a person from knowing God's love. Unbelief. Unbelief. And every day of unbelief is a denial and a further rejection of ultimate love. 
God's love is great to save from sin's eternal damnation, but he is secure enough to let you walk away in unbelief, rejecting his love. Friends, I want to begin today with the first false love that you must guard your heart against at all times. Beware the deception of unbelief. Beware the deception of unbelief. This is not true love. Nothing troubles Jesus like love rejected. And understand this, Jesus is not like us. He's not anxious for acceptance or for our validation. But because he pours out his life in his love. And unbelief occurs in many varied forms. Maybe you might say countless varied forms. But three I'll identify as as general category. When people hear the gospel without believing in Jesus. When people know about God. But they do not regard him as God. And do not therefore know him as God. And the third one is the one who follows along without following after. Maybe Judas is the greatest representative of cultural Christianity in our day and time. Each one of these varied forms of false love lacks one essential. The purpose for which John writes all of his gospel To believe. Believe in Jesus by faith. Dies a person in his death. Buries them in his tomb. And raises them in his resurrection power. To live in his new life. Because of his love. Wherever believe is absent. Unbelief masquerades. In false love to deceive. If I could illustrate unbelief for you, I I might say that one uh, strong illustration is that unbelief forms through deception, much like addiction in our world. No one at first indulges with the intent of destroying their life. Right? No alcoholic would tell you when their life is ruined, man, I took my first drink to get here. This, this is where I want to be all my life. No druggie who's wasted their life says, I have arrived. I've arrived. No person, man or woman alike, who can't get rid of the allure of pornography in their life says, this is the reason I took my first look. Whatever the addiction and the object of it is, No one indulges with the intent of destroying life. They enter in inch by inch to the promise of a better life, a greater pleasure. And the shock and the dismay of addiction is this. It's true because one is enslaved by that which has deceived them. Statistically, Many actually avoid flagrantly destroying their life by addiction. 
And because of this, the rationale of I can handle it, it, it justifies the mind, it, it hardens the heart, and it directs the will to continue. Because here's how they rationalize it. I'm smarter than those people. I, I'm better than those people. I'm more careful than those people. This could never happen to me. Or even worse yet, I've earned this. I deserve this. Friends, no one whose life is ruined by addiction starts with ruined as the goal. They just can't conceive of how they would possibly be deceived. And that's the point. That's the whole point. For deception slowly hardens us by rejection when truth confronts our sin to convict us. But the gospel seems a lesser hope. And you say no in some form to metastasize your unbelief into a damned eternity. That's deception of unbelief. Unbelief as the first false love may exist very near to Jesus, but it ultimately knows nothing of his true love. Unbelief is full of knowledge. It's full of emotion. It's full of activity. It's bloated by familiarity. It holds a similar look, but without any distinctive presence. Unbelief is filled with a common vocabulary, but it's absent of any lasting meaning in that vocabulary. Unbelief deceives not so much because of what it includes. That, that's the thing about unbelief, is that it includes everything that it necessitates to include. But rather it deceives by the one thing that's actually missing. Unbelief knows nothing of the sin-cleansing power of Jesus' blood or his life-giving power, his joy, his peace, his wisdom, and his love that comes from his abiding presence. I say to us today, stop telling yourself that couldn't be me and begin to pray, Spirit, where does unbelief remain in me? I want to create a little problem for us this morning. It's not really a problem, but historically, it may be one of the greatest arguments in the church, surely over the last 500 years. God loves you, friend, but he will not oppose your unbelief to confine, to restrict, or to change your decisions or your actions. Judas proves for us an excellent case study of what depending on free will for salvation will actually do for a person. Our will is not sovereign. But in sovereignty and in love, God ordains our choosing. And choose we must. But we must be careful how far we trust the freedom of our will. Judas heard and he received the same gospel as all the other disciples. Judas even received the morsel. It's like disciple of the month. 
just before he rejected it, ultimately. Free will can never save you. And free will will never lead you to seek after nor to find salvation, even when you know where it is. Free will always follows a path of self-nature. That's the essence of what free will is. Of one's own determination. Ultimately to self-destruction by deception of sin's eternal damnation. That's why I say to you, today is the time of salvation. When you hear the gospel for faith to believe, it is God speaking. And in that moment, the choice that God has ordained for you to make is who will you trust? Who will you believe? Who will you choose to put your life in? Your will or God's? God's work to salvation for some is the threshold for Satan to enter for others. That's what Judas teaches us here. Apathy, passivity, rejection, and self-dependence only hardens the heart so you cannot know when the final opportunity has passed. Every no to God, every maybe later, every not now, every not that way, every act other than believe to repent, confess, and obey hardens the heart with a thickening determination and a quickening self-confidence to further isolate and fortify your will yet in unbelief. And let's be clear, believe is not merely to admire, to desire, or even agree. But believe is to immerse self completely and comprehensively by faith into Jesus Christ, into his person, who he is, into his teachings, all that he said, into his death, all that he's accomplished for us, into his burial, our grave that he went in for us, into his resurrection that he was raised for us, into his kingdom reign as Lord over us. There is no middle ground. He is Lord or he's not at all. And the gray area that we create with a love that is false to the core is damnation. It's not real, friends. It's not biblical. And the question is simply this. Are you living deceived? And the false love of unbelief. Have fun with that in community group this week. <laughs> now let me give a word of pastoral leadership. If we can't talk about doctrine in love, what are we doing? If we can't have serious conversations 
without divisions that cannot be traversed. We're not loving one another. The only thing I ask is this. That when you talk about where you're at in understanding doctrines, before you say, I think, consider what the Bible says. That's all I offer. And then, love one another. And embrace one another. You might learn something from one another. Now that's total sidebar from the sermon. Let's go back to the sermon. Jesus loved Judas to the very end. But Judas never believed. And that excused him from the table early. So false love could destroy his life as Satan's advocate. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one Another. Jesus knew everything had been put into motion for the time of his crucifixion. Satan could now kill Jesus because Jesus gave him permission. That permissive will of God thing. God's glory fully displayed by unity between the Father and the Son is displayed to us here as Jesus is obeying all the way to his death. All the way to his death. Can you imagine... Just the the heaviness that permeated the room, and no one was talking about it. But listen, friends, when Satan was able to act, there's never a brightness in the spirit of people. And so there's a hope at the table with Jesus, and yet there's this, this, this simmering under the surface reality that, man, Satan, work something's going on right now. I feel that warfare taking place. And what does Jesus say to that? Now the Son of Man is glorified. Doesn't feel like glory in the room right now. But Jesus teaches his disciples what it is that his crucifixion means. It's, it's God's glory on display, friends. This, this is love. What Jesus said from the beginning that he and the Father are one, he now tells them how it is that they will know this. And it says this, that the glory of God is displayed through the perfect love in Jesus' obedience. First of all, we see that the glory is being merged here. Jesus provided God's perfect sacrifice whom the Father sent as he purposed atonement for sin to be done through him. 
And then after glory is merged, glory is united. Jesus' perfect sacrifice is displayed, uh, 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 displaying rather God's glory. And in that glory, sin is atoned, holiness is vindicated and justified, righteousness is satisfied, and it is enthroned, and wrath is consumed and appeased. They're one, they're one, and glory then will be enthroned. The Bible tells us God raised him from the dead. Why? Because he was satisfied with his sacrifice. And he seated him at the right hand, a position of authority where none other has ever been worthy to be seated. He placed him there, and he put upon him a name that is above every name, that at that name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, there will be no place where people will not bow to the name that God has given to his son for his perfect sacrifice, Jesus. This is the coronation of eternity. This is the enthronement, the exaltation of the glory of God. Jesus' crucifixion displays complete Glory through perfect love. The Father and the Son are one and the glory of sovereign authority has been displayed to show eternal love. What more could be said for greater confidence and greater assurance of salvation? What kind of God do you want to claim to hold your salvation? I want one that can't be touched. I want one that is fully worthy. That doesn't come back to me and go, I don't have anything for you today. But following the will and the way of God and trusting to obey his word, they're seldom easy. In verses 31 and 32 about the glory being one would have been the hardest teaching for the disciples. The hardest I mean, God is up there and you're right here. We seem to do a lot of cool things, but spanning that gap just seems really, how'd that happen? Demanding the greatest difficulty to believe and accept even as it remains today. And so what does Jesus do with this? Hard teaching? What does he do? You better get over it. You better get used to it. No, verse 33, what does he say? Little children, little children. Listen, he uses the most intimate of terms. He's appealing to their heart. He's appealing to their relationship of love. Little children, you don't call your colleagues little children. But they weren't just his colleagues. He was Lord. Little children, he says, his hard teachings are to encourage and to strengthen our faith. But those who will not believe become afflicted because of their unbelief. Jesus' plan, or excuse me, God's plan was never for Jesus to stay on the earth. But when Jesus leaves the earth, he will not leave his people. That's what he's setting them up for, friends. That's where he's leading them. Perfect glory displayed is no small matter to be immediately understood or comprehended. But Jesus comforts and he encourages to strengthen and to increase our faith. He's massaging the gospel into their hearts and into their lives by the relationship he has with them. That's what he's wanting us to do 
as well. And then he gives a new commandment, verse 34, love one another. Love for one another distinguishes Christians as Jesus' disciples in the world. Friends, the way Christians love one another as Jesus loved is the prevailing testimony to the world that he is Lord. Maybe we could even say this, that the best way for us to grow and to mature, not only in our understanding, but in the depths of truly trusting and believing the hardest doctrines of our faith, is to practice a more intentional love for one another. Knowing that through that love, God will make clear in our hearts and minds what he wants us to know in all things. Because here Jesus provides the Christians one priority for life. It's one priority for practice. Hold, one, hold a finger up like this. One. We can do it at a ball game. We can do it here, right? What is it? It should already be on the screens. Love one another. Hear me. I'm not telling you it's our first priority. I'm telling you it's our one priority. There's a big difference. A first is the first in a number of other things. Mm -mm. Soul only one priority. Why does he call it a new commandment? Why are commands all fulfilled in this one as we learn? Because until we love God with a self-denying, cross-carrying abandonment, we cannot and we will not live to love others as Jesus has loved us. The word new gives the command its emphatic priority, its soul importance. It is the Christ follower's priority, not one of many. That's what the word new serves to do here. Jesus is not just advocating a mushy-gushy feel-good throughout the world. Rather, he is commanding how Christ followers are to live toward one another. Christ followers demonstrate God's love to a lost world when we prioritize practicing sacrificial love toward one another. When we live as we've been loved by Jesus. You want to know why this weekend is so important for our church? Because what God is able to do through moments like that cannot be accomplished in any other way. Until we rise up, or you might say bow down, and love sacrificially and selflessly, God's not able to do all that he wants to do. There are reasons that Christians do not love people. Do you know that? Do you know where those verses are found? There are reasons that Christians do not love people. You feel like I'm setting you up, don't you? I am. Christians do not love people or give priority to love others because we like them, because they're like us. We don't show favor to those that are most akin to us to give love to. As a matter of fact, Christians reject loving others simply because we have a common socioeconomic status. 
Because our skin color is the same. Because they can help me. They can scratch my back if I scratch yours. They'll provide me some benefit or, or we have common affinities or common preferences. We reject these as foundational rationales for love that justify us. These are not the reasons that we love one another. That's why the church should be one of the most diverse communities that you've ever seen. Crossing all lines that the world creates that divides people. And Christians are the ones that cross those lines in obedience. A familiar critique. Let me back up just a moment and finish by saying this, that the economy of Christian love does not operate like the world's economy of love. Christians don't spend what we have, but like a teenager living off a daddy's pocketbook, we lavish what we've been given. You ever think about that? The Bible says God lavishes us with his love. That's just a ridiculous level of giving. That's what that means. A level that you totally aren't worthy of. Like, you, you didn't deserve any of that, but you got all of it. You know, And it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that is so celebratory. That's how Christians are called to love one another. Like daddy's paying the bills because he is. And there's no end to the resources. Now that's true of God. I'm still trying to convince my daughter. That's a joke. A familiar critique now. That's too often accurate. Mahatma Gandhi is quoted as saying, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. This popular sentiment remains today and it often propagates a lot of sub-biblical Christianity from within the church let alone outside the church some though would dare to begin with this argument to prophesy against the wrong abuses of what we're calling love in the church today and then dare to try and get it right when they recognize that the biggest problem though is really me the biggest problem with love being better in this church is standing in front of you, in my eyes. Christ followers concern themselves with this. Do I live the way that I've been loved by Jesus? Do I live the way that God has loved me in Christ? Christians can't love like Jesus loved. God doesn't call us to... To, to hang on a cross. He doesn't need another sacrifice that would be totally less than the one he's already offered. But we must live like Jesus has loved us. We recognize that loving one another is not about how you feel about them, not about how worthy or how lovable others really are, but about how much we've already been loved. Loving one another, especially in the church, demonstrates how worthy Jesus is of our worship, how worthy he is that we give of ourselves to love others that are unlovable because as Lord, he loved me completely when I was most unlovable. When Christians live like we've been loved by Jesus, we testify that Jesus is worthy of all worship by loving all to demonstrate the way Jesus loved the most unworthy, me. 
Jesus is our one priority for why Christians do love. Christians love because we're bonded together. Love that word. Maybe you've heard. Bonded together in Jesus' love. In Jesus, every debt is canceled against us except one love each other. And of this debt, we are debtors to one another forever. When you live to love others the way you've been loved by Jesus, there's no question about whether you love God or not. Love centers the church on Jesus to live as one in him. And what happens when we live as one in him? We unite not only with God the Son, but God the Father who are already one. We join our triune God in his redemptive work in the world. The Christian's eternal purpose for remaining in this world unites them with the perfect glory of God the Father demonstrated through the perfect sacrifice of the Son on the cross to tell the whole world of God's redeeming love. And yet one final warning remains. Let me cover it briefly. Verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where am I going? You can, or where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I can't imagine how hard these words must have hit Peter. Harder than a locomotive at full steam. You know why? Because when Jesus said at the beginning of this conversation that one of you would betray me, this was the most likely identification for who that would be openly. That They didn't know what had happened with Judas. John tells us that. This open conversation seems to infer that Peter would be the one to betray. Jesus just predicted the disciple would betray him. It seems as though he may have identified that betrayer. And how does Peter respond? Well, how do you respond when you get most defensive? Right? He, he took position. He, he steeled his determination and he vowed to ensure Jesus' safety. But personal safety in this moment opposes God's will for Jesus to be sin's propitiation. And Peter will learn this, but not by self-determination. For following Jesus begins in belief that produces self-denial and obedience by faith. Friends, here's the second false love that you must continually guard your heart against. You must guard against the deception of self-determination. Peter demonstrates a zeal that creates the whole wrong focus for a believer that all of us are inclined, especially when we get defensive, to determine ourselves forward in. But spiritual zeal, friends, that depends on self-willed determination leads to lordship denial. Opposing the very one you claim to represent. Love is not all about what one can do, what one can think, or what one can accomplish for God. The wrong motivation may produce the right action on occasion, like a broken clock does twice a day. But the fruit of righteousness is never produced by self-determination that steals God's glory. 
Loving God means trusting him in all things at all times, especially when it opposes what you think, what you feel, or what you desire. Loving God is not about giving all you can or want to give, but giving all of you. Self-will will never save. Just as we saw with Judas. And self-will will never sustain you in your Christian life. Just as we see with Peter. You can't determine your life to Jesus, nor can you determine your life for Jesus. Of all the lessons we learned from Peter, this should be our greatest. That though our faith is sometimes overrun by self-will and determination, we don't have to live in defeat because Jesus forgives and redeems when we repent and believe. The Christian life surrenders all to the greatest love of all in Jesus to live it out every day. Christian, if you dare to live to love others the way Jesus loved you, it will only happen as you surrender to be filled and consumed with his redeeming love. The Christian life is defined by love. To live as we've been loved in Jesus Christ so the world can know God's love. Let's pray.